Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow, and this week's guest is the broadcaster and writer Anita Arnund. Anita's voice will be familiar to many. She began her career while she was still at university in the newsroom of satellite channel Z. She was then snapped up by Radio 5 Live and has since presented many news and current affairs programmes on the BBC. In 2012, Anita became the host of Any Answers on Radio 4 and a few years later she published her first book, a compelling biography of Princess Sophia Dulip Singh a daughter of the last Maharaja of the Sikh Empire and a goddaughter of Queen Victoria. This book launched a divergent career in history and Anita now reaches a huge audience with the Empire podcast, which she co-hosts with William Dalrymple. It's a fascinating series which looks at the rise and fall of empires and how they shaped the world around us today. Let's find out more. Anita, you were brought up to question things, and your late father loved a debate over dinner. How did this upbringing shape young Anita? I think I can guess. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he did. I was thinking about this on the way here, because I thought you might ask me uh, my origin story, because you've done it on your previous podcast. Um, I think it set me up in really good stead. At the time, I didn't recognise it as being the gift that I now recognise it to be. So... It just made you use economy of expression to get your point across at the dinner table because we're a loud family. I mean, it's mm. like a sort of a bag of ferrets How when many? we get together. We're two brothers who are very chatty as well. My father, who was like a planet when he took up space. And then my mother, who, you know, I'm a poor woman. She's quite brilliant, but pushed to get a word in edgeways. So if you wanted to be heard, you had to get your point across succinctly. What a wonderful trade for radio. Yes, I mean, sadly, he died before I made it, so he Mm. never knew how much he helped. Where did your family come from then? I was born in Essex. I'm an Essex guy. I was born in London. But my parents, when an Asian person asks you that question, you know they mean where do your ancestors come from. Indeed, indeed. So my mother's side, Lahore, Mm -hmm. 
so pre-partition, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, she spent the first few months of her lives in a refugee camp. Mm. And my father from near Peshawar, a place called Galabag. Been to Peshawar, mm. drove there. Yes, yep. I mean, I haven't. It hasn't never been safe enough for me to go, but I'm longing to go back to Galabag. I'd like to see what it's like. Mm. I am British, and I ha am of Indian heritage, and I am proud of both of those things. I don't wear them like a flashing sandwich board. I'm no, just me. I think I might have noticed otherwise. <laughs> yes. Um, but those are the things that make me who I am. So I never hide them, but I also don't have a sort of beacon of light shining on myself. I find myself endlessly uninteresting. So, you know, it's not really something I, I go on about. Your questioning mind led you to the world of debating and you won a public speaking competition in 1991. What did this discipline teach you? It taught me a lot of things. It taught me the value of teaching young people oracy, which is having the confidence to stand up in your own skin and hear your voice, addressing more people than those who can be contained in your, your own bubble. Um, it taught me another thing. My dad, he always insisted that in preparation for a debate, I had to take the opposing view. Sometimes he pushed me in a debate competition to take a view that I didn't hold. And that, I hated it. I hated it at the time. You know, imagine being a, a young kid. You know, you're idealistic and you're frightened of nuclear war. And he said, no, right, I want you to argue the case for having a nuclear deterrent, which just made my skin crawl. Now I look back on it and I think, actually, that's a really good thing to know, how to step into somebody else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. So actually, it was a huge gift and I'm very grateful to him. Did you consider any other career or were you always destined for journalism? I wanted to be an English teacher for ages. <laughs> I really did. I loved literature. I thought that teaching was the most noble profession. I still think that. I think it's amazing. But you know, if you, if you grow up in an immigrant family, they worry about you. So when I announced that I wanted to be an English teacher, my dad said, you want to read books for a living? <laughs> Is that what you want to do? No, no, that's not going to be the thing. So there was always this uh, kind of push to do something more. And, you know, ultimately those things in an Asian family are medicine, law or engineering. I ruled myself out of anything scientific because I was a klutz. <laughs> I couldn't do those things. But law was something that he thought I would be good at. But I, I just didn't care enough for it. I really didn't. I knew I wanted to change the world. That's what I knew. So I grew up in a home where there was always this saying that on this planet you pay rent. You don't just take up space, you put something back in. And I saw so many things. I mean, I was the most outraged kid. I must have been so tedious to be around. I always had some cause, something to, you know, thump a table about. And when I realised I wasn't going to be some kind of human rights lawyer winning cases, it just wasn't that the, the games of law, the strictures of law, the limitations of law were too much. I thought very early on, I think probably from the age of about 16, that journalism was the thing I wanted to do. That would change the world. Now, we haven't had any discussion before all this started. And I read law at university, and it was a desperate subject. My commiserations. Ghastly subject. And I had no idea of wanting to be a journalist. But the moment I became one, I knew that's what so I wanted So how did you do, do it then? I mean, why, what, what, what was your hmm? handbrake turn into journalism? Nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> I had a cousin, Peter Snow. Ah. And he was sure I needed to be a journalist. 
And I hadn't even clue what one was. Yes, well, I, I know some of your family from that side because, of course, the fabulous Margaret Macmillan, who is part of your family, uh, was one of our brilliant wreath lectures. So I'm, I'm deeply fond of Peter and his wife, Anne, who were on the road for most of the time supporting Margaret. And I, I, I like that very much. The danger in this encounter is that you're going to run away with it because you're so good at it. <laughs> oh, <God. And> yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you balanced university studies with work on a satellite news station and... You were the European head of news and current affairs by the age of 25. Were you very ambitious? Yes, hmm. I must have been. I mean, I didn't think so at the time. I think it was sort of every day putting the next foot forward, to be honest. But looking back, I must have been. Although there was a time. So I'll show you, I haven't said this to anybody. <laughs> I'll <laughs> tell you. Uh, but do you remember there was David Lloyd at mm -hmm. Channel 4? Mm -hmm. He called me in. So when I was working at this satellite TV station, and I was doing well, you know, I'd, I'd sort of been promoted and promoted, and it was great. I mean, that sounds better than it is, because I still had a desk outside a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it was water music of a different kind that was my soundtrack of my early years. But he said, you know, do you want to come and work here? I can offer you a part-time job at Channel 4 News. And I said, well, no, because I've got a full-time job now. And he said, but are you insane? I said, no, because every day I can do this, and I've got a... I've got a salary and you can't match that. All of this ended. And he said, can I just talk to you? I think you're mad. <laughs> I think you're friendly mad. And also, young lady, he said, I don't think you have sharp enough elbows. So I think you need to sharpen your elbows. So you're asking me if I was ambitious. He didn't think I was ambitious enough. I think I was, I was all right. I can't imagine that you would have done anything but succeed and we might have worked together. I mean, that would have been the dream. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was saying no to. But I, but do I regret it? I don't. I no. don't, actually. It was the most amazing laboratory to learn a craft and to make mistakes and, and to have you, things blow up. You, know? <laughs> you cracked the empire, the BBC. Well, that was something else. Unexpected. Because, you know, I suppose when you say, I keep returning back to this question because I, I don't tend to think about myself but was I ambitious I never planned anything people keep saying what's your plan <laughs> I've never had a plan I know what I'm doing until two days after this day but there's nothing beyond that so the BBC thing knocking on the door was lovely hosting any answers on the BBC requires a particular skill set what do you like most about working on this radio program I love it I absolutely love it what better way of taking the pulse of a nation and speaking truth to power, if that's what we get into this for, and I'm still, you know, slightly insufferably idealistic about what we do, I think it's marvellous. There was once this time, um, and you'll know him, so I won't say his name, but you know how many of our kind journalists go into politics. It's one of these journalists and politicians who came up to me at a party. Hmm. It's a little bit merry, shall we say. Like so many. And so we got into a row. <laughs> as you do in a party. I mean, spirited conversation about something he'd said. And he said, he put, sort of jabbed his finger at me. He goes, you know what? The problem with you lot, you journalists, is that you sit at the back of the class and you jeer and we're at the front of the class and we're doing things. And I came up with an answer that I'm still proud of. So do you mind if I share it with you? It's just yeah. one thing I am actually proud of. I said, actually, the problem with people like you is that you have no idea what's going on in the classroom. We're at the back, maybe. But then we can tell you, that you're not being heard. Or we can come to the front and say, have you spoken to the people in this middle bit? Because this is what they're saying. And I think that's the function of what we do. And any answers is a 
crystallisation of that, I think. It's extraordinarily revealing as a result. Yes, I think so. Over a period of time, I've managed to get people to trust. And I'm deeply humbled by that, that they do trust me sometimes to share things that are incredibly painful, powerful, life-changing, or rage. You know, to have a safe place to just vent. And I like that. You said something to listeners on a recent edition of Any Answers that felt rather refreshing. You're very good at telling me when I'm wrong, and I welcome that. Do you think it is vital to listen generously to different opinions? Oh, God, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, if you don't, you don't really know anything. But do you think our industry does? I think increasingly it's drifting away from that. I mean, there are still great places where you can do that. But there's so much shouting. Hmm. Don't you find that too? I do. Absolutely. And, and it's a headache. It just gives me a headache. You don't learn anything from And shouting. if it's giving us a headache, what's it doing to the listener? Well, you, you can see what it's doing. They're turning off. They're switching off and they're getting less and less interested. And that's a problem. Though they're not switching off any answers. No. I mean, that's very kind, actually. You know, we're very proud of what we've, we've built. You never intended to be a writer, but a photograph in a magazine ignited your curiosity and set the course for a divergent career. Can you tell me about that photograph? With pleasure. So I was on maternity leave, and when you're a first-time mum, you're slightly hysterical about noise. <laughs> so you do anything that's silent. And that included reading stuff that would have gone straight into recycling. And it was a local magazine that said, Suffragette Exhibition here in the town hall. And they had a picture of a woman with a Votes for Women sandwich board. And even though it was black and white, there was something in me. And she, she dressed in Edwardian furs and finery. And I thought, hang on a minute, she looks Asian to me. She looks, she looks like an auntie of mine, actually, to be honest with you, John. So I rang up the magazine. I said, who is it? Who is this suffragette? And they said, oh, her name's Sophia Dalip Singh. Or they said Sophia at that time. And that was even worse because I'm a political journalist. I've been a feminist for longer and my married name is Singh. <laughs> this is ridiculous. How do I not know about her? So I thought I'd get a book about it, and there was no book. So it started a two-year obsession where I just wanted to know how this had happened. And I still never intended to write a book, but I kept boring my husband to death about it. And then he said, just write it down. Just write it down and I'll read the book. So I did. You obviously enjoyed the research process. God, I love it. It's the, my favourite part of writing Really? Oh, I absolutely love it. John, it's what you enjoy about journalism. It's trying to get under the bonnet. So if you're talking to people, you're interviewing people, you've got a live person with a pulse. If you're doing research, you're interrogating dead people in boxes, but that rush is the same. It's exactly the same. Essentially what you're saying is that to be a good biographer, you're bound to be a wonderful journalist too. Well, I wouldn't say that. Well, I mean, <laughs> I just... the processes are the same, the, the, except the... that one of them's dead. <laughs> yes, you know, the food groups are exactly the same. And the cynicism is exactly the same. So I know if I'm looking through documents... You know, it's that spidey sense when you think somebody's, that's bullshit. <laughs> that, is, that is terrible and not right. But I don't know why it isn't. And it just propels you on to look further, just as you would in an interview. Think, well, that's not right. I'm going to press further. Hmm. So I guess so. Same muscles. Did you ever imagine that Sophia would be such an extraordinary success? No, <laughs> no. 
no, that's what I'm saying. I stumble through life. <laughs> no, 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 but you're a journalist. And once you looked at it, you must have said, my goodness, this really is rather good. Yes, but I, I mean, I, I knew the story was important enough to give five years of my life to. I knew that and I knew it was worth it. Even with a small child, I knew that I had to do, I had to do it. But I didn't know that people would care necessarily and I tried not to think about whether people would care or not. I just wanted to tell the story. And when they did care and they continue to care, uh, that kind of is gravy. <laughs> you know, it's gravy and I love it and I'm very grateful. So what was it like to see Sophia emblazoned in a blue plaque? Do you know I pulled the cord for the blue plaque? I unveiled it. Did you? Can you imagine? What fun. Where is it? It's at Hampton Court. It's a grace and favour house opposite Hampton Court. So it's called Faraday House. It used to be where Michael Faraday lived. So he has a plaque. And she did not. So I sort of lobbied, saying, you know, you really need to. This woman is exceptional. She fought for women's rights here in this country to have the vote. So it's a very long process. But then they very kindly said... Um, Here's the rope, pull it. And I pulled it so hard it hit me on the head. That's <laughs> a true story. But what a wonderful combination of talents then. Two very different blue plaques. Yes. Well, that's true. You know, that's there's something in the water, obviously, <laughs> around there. But yes, two very great people. Sophia led you to collaborate with the historian William Dalrymple via the story of the Koh-i-Noor diamond. And... Uh, this jewel returned to the spotlight with the coronation of Charles III. Can you tell me why it's the focus of so much attention? It is, or it has become, the talisman of imperial humiliation. In the minds of Indians, Pakistanis in particular, that's what it is. It's partly that because the British turned it into that when they got it. You know, for them, it was the star attraction in the Great Exhibition of 1851 to show Victoria's dominion over her Eastern Empire. So right from that moment, it was the symbol of we own you. It was an imperial capture. It was. And I think that was one of the motivations that drove William and I to write the book. And I'm very proud of the fact that we did. Because up until very recently, if you went to go and see that diamond, the story would be told by the people who look after and, and guide people around or give you information is that it was a gift from India. Unless a gift is handed over at the point of a bayonet, that isn't a gift. And so we wanted to actually take the story from ground to crown and tell you what really happened, and that's what we did. Your experience of the coronation would be quite different from most people's, because you would have been hunting down the Kohenor diamond. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I care more about the truth than I do about shiny things, to be honest. I know a lot of people would like it back in India and Pakistan. For me, the prime motivating factor was this is what happened. This is a story of a, a really tragic story and you should know it, at least know it. So I watched the coronation like everybody else. I actually didn't have strong eyes on the. I mean, the Kona wasn't there. Everybody was asking me for interviews at the time and I was talking about a jewel that wasn't there. <laughs> so it was kind of the Where's Wally of history. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that, that's the only difference. That it, <laughs> <laughs> Your podcast, Empire, tackles a subject that some find too uncomfortable to discuss. Did you expect it to find such a large audience? No. I mean, no. No. I mean, we are now up to 10 million downloads. Wow. Can you believe it? And we're not even a year old yet. That's crackers, isn't it? So, yes, I mean, there are some people who, and they're often people who don't listen, who get very 
cross about it. At the moment, we're in the middle of the slavery episodes. The first series was about the Raj, the second was about the Ottomans, and now we're into slavery. And the people who get quite cross are the ones who don't listen and probably don't want to listen. We're not, we're not their cup of tea and we never will be, however, before we present the cup. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Do you understand the defensiveness in discussions of empire, or do you get frustrated by the culture wars that can discourage an open-minded examination of the past. I mean, the culture was boring. They're obstructive. Do I understand why people are resistant? Of course I understand that. It's not easy Hmm. to think that your nation, a nation that you love and you're proud of, could have had a darkness in its Hmm. past. But, I mean, what I try and tell people is that both things can be true. Hmm. Both things can be true. I know I give too long answers. Can I tell you a story, though? Of course. We want more. Well, when I wrote one of my other books, which dwells in that imperial space, The Patient Assassin, and it's about a massacre that took place in Jallianwallabagh, and one of the men responsible was from Tipperary in Ireland. I had, every single week, letters coming from Ireland <laughs> apologising, which I found really perplexing, because I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't blame you. I went and did that whole book tour cycle you're very familiar with, and I had people come up and sort of cry, There was one man who said, can I hug you? Because I'm so sorry. And I just don't know what to do with that because it's misplaced. And I'm like, you know, you you didn't do anything. It's okay. But it's good that you know this story. But so many of us want to apologise for something they had absolutely nothing to do with, but biologically they did. Thinking of my grandfather, who was a general in the First World War. What did he do? Well, he led the retreat from Mons, which I suppose saved a lot of lives, but generally speaking... You want to apologise? Well, I keep quiet about it. I mean, that's understandable and inherently human, but I would find you saying sorry for your grandfather. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting one because, I mean, we're doing, with the slavery one, we're doing interviews. There are some really interesting people, Laura Trevelyan being one of them, Alex Renton being another, whose ancestors were slavers. Now, they have gone into the darkest parts of their lives and they want to say sorry. And I, I get that. I mean, I, I've spoken to Alex about this, and, and he's explained why. But, you know, he's also talking about reparations. They're both talking about reparations. So, you know what, I'm not sure. And that's something about me. I'm never wedded to anything, so I'm not sure. I'm very interested in creative partnerships. I was wondering what it's like working with William Dalrymple. Do you take different roles in the preparation 
and weekly discussion. <laughs> that would suggest there's some method. <laughs> no. um, so he's my mate. I really like him. Hmm. The role isn't uh, delineated or we don't say, right, you're going to be good cop and I'll be bad cop this week. No, it's nothing like that. We'll have a chat. And we'll say that we want to do this. And what you hear on the podcast is exactly what we'd be doing if there was no microphone and we were at a table in a pub. That's what we would be talking about or arguing about or, you know, exploring. So I suppose if there's anything, we have a chat beforehand. We have an excellent producer who tries to keep us in order. I think I may buy him a taser for Christmas because it's not always easy. <laughs> but that's how it all gets thrown together. Was your own education in the history of the British Empire inadequate? And can you see any progress in how the subject is actually taught today and discussed? I mean, my, my education in the history of empire was non-existent. Hmm. I can tell you more about a Tudor house timber frame. I can tell you more about viaducts. I can tell you more about aqueducts from my schooling than I could about any of, of that. And yet we studied World War I. We touched on the fact that India sent some soldiers, largest volunteer army the world has ever known. But that was it. That was mm. all. So, you know, that desire to know more, I suppose is partly rooted in who I am and where I come from. But it wasn't, it wasn't done well when I was growing up. It's rather intriguing because when I was a child, for example, it was more recent than it is now. And I'm just wondering whether distance in time has now got people thinking much more seriously about exactly what we did wrong. I think that's a really clever question, and I think you're right. And I think it's not just distance and time. I think it's also accessibility. And we have this new generation that isn't as satisfied and supine as we might have been. Um, they don't take, you know, anything on face value. <laughs> They're always digging around for their own things. So, I mean, that partly explains the success of the Empire podcast, is that they want to know more. And a lot of history teachers have got in touch with us saying, actually, we are now pulling this into our teaching. Things are changing. So that is good and that is better, I think. I recently spoke to the writer Tim Marshall about the race to colonise space. Is it vital that we look at history so that we do better now? Well, of course. I heard, you, I heard Tim, actually, and he's someone I respect a great deal. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Of course it's important. Of course it's important. If you don't know what you fell over the first time, you're going to trip over it again. I mean, that's a really inelegant way of paraphrasing a, a very well-known... Isn't there uh, a danger effort. you might be spreading the, the guilt? No, oh dear, I'm, was that us? Did we do that? Well, no, I think the knowledge is different. I think knowledge and guilt are different things. I'm not asking you to be guilty about anything. That's up to you and your confessor or your conscience or, where, you know, your teddy bear. That's up to you. You sort that out yourself. But I want you to have the knowledge. And if you don't want to have the knowledge, what are you? You're, you're, you're a sort of a man baby with your fingers in your ears going, la, 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 I can't hear you. What's the point of that? You've said before that radio is your spiritual home. How does podcasting compare? Do you feel less constrained in this medium than on BBC radio? I mean, I think... You're not regulated. You're not regulated. I mean, I, I've heard you describe it as the Wild West, but I don't think it is quite the Wild West. I think it's the difference between, you know, the, the stuff at the BBC, quite rightly, is crafted or regulated. There is a stricter regime behind it. You still try to do your best. You still try to tell the truth. But it's the difference between going into a cathedral, if you like. A lot of my colleagues are amazing at making programmes. And there, there's sort of art there. 
And the podcast is going to the pub with a bunch of interesting people and talking. And that's, I think, the difference. And, I, and you know, I like going to the pub. It's fun. <laughs> Goalhanger, the production company behind Empire, is dominating the podcast charts at the moment. Do you think the competition threatens the BBC or spurs it on to do yet better? The competition's always good, isn't it? <laughs> I work for both, and that's what I'll say. It's never a bad thing. With the rise of disinformation and fake news, do you worry that people are turning towards alternative sources for their news? Sources that are less rigorous in their journalism? Yes, and you should all be worried about that. Misinformation, fake news, these sort of tidal flows of nonsense that sweep people away, that aren't checked, that aren't accountable, should worry all of us. Because you can say anything, black is white, white is black, day is night, night is day. What worries me is the ease with which people seem keen to embrace it. So, you know, all we can do, I think those of us who care about journalism and truth, is just keep keep on talking <laughs> until our voices get frayed from the effort. I think we just have to keep on saying, Actu- but actually, no, that's not right. No, that's not true. And this is why. We're at a poignant moment in the work that you're doing. Can you tell me a little more about the third season of Empire, which is focusing on slavery? Sure. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. It's the one series that's polarised people the most. We have a certain number of people who get in touch saying, you know, why are you talking about this? Why are you trying to make us feel bad? Why are you trying to do Britain down? And that isn't what it is at all. It's about understanding. I would have thought so. I would have thought that's important. And if you're interested and um, you have a a mind that is inquiring, why wouldn't you want to know? What is your reason for not wanting to know or for us not wanting to talk about it? Also, I find that actually it's a disingenuous argument that goes on. So when, you know, and it's often people who haven't heard it. So, you know, you'll have people sometimes getting in touch saying, well, you're talking about, you're trying to make us bad. You want to talk about the Royal African Company. What about the Brits who are picked up from Britain, you know, by Arab slavers? What about them? And then you point out, actually, yes, we've done an episode on that. <laughs> we have. We've gone right back to prehistory. Oh, well, what about, you know, Vikings? We've also covered that. Oh, well, what about Romans? We've also done that. So, you know, it's often, the whataboutery is often, I think, a way of saying shut up. Don't talk about it. And the truth of the matter is that imperial hands are bound to leave a little bit of guilt behind. Sure. But, you know, that's that's not why I'm in it. Mm. it's up to you how you digest it but shouldn't you know shouldn't you want to know and why do you want to hide it or or silence it I don't understand these are important stories these are why we are all where we are today Mm. why wouldn't you want to know your third book The Patient Assassin looked at one man's pursuit of vengeance following the atrocity at the city of Amritsar a place you are personally connected to afterwards you were put in touch with a descendant of the brigadier who gave the order to open fire back in 1919. Have you had the opportunity to visit Amritsar together? No, not yet. It was a really weird meeting, I'll be honest with you. I mean, at the time I thought I might want to do it, but I don't know what it will achieve now, to be honest, because her mind was so made up that he had done the right thing. It was quite unexpected that she would be so very entrenched in that view. And sometimes, you know what, you just have to step back and say... Actually, there's nothing I can say 
that can convince you otherwise. There's nothing I can show you. She came out with all sorts of things that just were not true. They weren't right. They were like somebody shouting fake news, fake news at a, at a bulletin that you're doing or a story that you're covering. So I'm not sure. I mean, never say never, John. Never say never. I mean, I, I don't know. That's how I feel right now, now that you're asking me. Maybe I'll feel differently on well, maybe next it's Wednesday. Ne- you know, who knows? Maybe this will also elicit a never say never. Do you think the British government will one day give the apology many long to hear? It, it's come so close in the yeah. past, really close. And it would, I don't co- th- it would I don't, cost so little. Yes, it? that is true. And and if it means so much to India and Indians, and you're looking to build stronger trade links with India and a very muscular Modi government, it is not beyond the wit that this may be one of the things that uh, that happens. I mean, a lot of people think that that cognizance of that relationship, the importance of it, is what sort of had the Kohenor dropped into the darkness for the coronation. So it is possible, isn't it? Maybe we should just backtrack for a moment in, in the sense that there may be people listening who actually have no idea what happened at Amritsar. Okay, so this is April 1919, and it's in a place called the Punjab. Amritsar is the second city of Punjab, or was the second city of Punjab at that time. And a man called Brigadier Dyer decided that he was going to teach restive Indians a lesson. He heard that there was a political meeting going on in a place called Jallianwalabagh. It's um, it, it translates as the Garden of Jallian. It's not a garden; it's a flat wreck area surrounded by walls. There's only one entrance to it, and it's such a narrow entrance that three people walking side by side can get through it, and it's no wider than that. So he tries first of all to drive his armored vehicles through that space, and he can't get them through. They're machine gun mounted, so he leaves them outside, but they're kind of blocking the exit. And he marches his men, riflemen, in. And without issuing any warning to disperse, he orders them to fire into the thickest parts of the crowd. And fire, and fire, and fire. 1,650 bullets. He orders them to swivel and fire into the parts of the bog, the garden, where people are trying to scramble over the walls. So pyramids of bodies are found together. And then, very calmly... He orders his men out, offers no medical assistance to those who are bleeding to death. And later on that night, there is a curfew. So people bleed to death in a long night of horror, listening to the wailing of people dying. That's what that episode is all about. How much of this is taught in British schools? Well, I didn't hear about it, did you? Nor did I. No. And didn't you have a grandfather who was nearly there? (laughs) <laughs> yes, he was. He was. I mean, he was there. That he. Oh, it's just one of those dumb luck things, and it's one thing that he never got over. A uh, grandfather who I I never knew who died before I was born. But the story is one of those stories that is powerful in our family. So he was a young kid. He was seventeen years old. He'd come down from his home near Peshawar to buy parts for sewing machines, and he met friends there, and they were having a picnic. Because not everybody there was there for a political meeting. It was also Vesaki, which is sort of like a Punjabi Christmas. You know, it's said people come in from all over. They come to the Golden Temple. They have picnics at this one space, which is very close to the Golden Temple. So he met his friends. They're eating. He tells them, well, just hang on. I've got to go to Hall Market, which is just very nearby. And I'll be right back. 
and he leaves and he actually passed a column of military men. He's not from Amrit, so he doesn't know what they're about or what's going on. He just thinks that's what happens in a big city. Gets to Hallmarket, the first he knows of what's happened is that there is wailing sweeping across the market as people hear what's happened. So he tries to run back because his friends are there. And he can't get back because he's not allowed anywhere near it. So he does something that he never really got over, is that he runs and he hides until morning. And it's only in the morning that he discovers that his friends are dead. So, you know, he lived with that. He went blind very early in life. And whenever anybody asked him how he felt about it or commiserated, he would say, don't feel sorry for me because God gave me my life that day. It's only right he takes something in return. So, you know, there's that thing, I mean, you know, you know it, survivor's guilt sort of ate him. And that's the connection I have with or the motivation I had in going into something which is really ugly. You know, it is, it is ugly. The, the massacre is ugly. But it's so important for us to know. Yeah, and also, you know, on the other side of that equation, you know, you have a, a man who waits. The folklore is that he was a young boy in the garden. It's not true. He wasn't a young boy. He may not have been in the garden. He certainly was an Amritsar. But that he's one of those people locked in the garden all night, listening to the screaming, getting more and more silent as people died. And then he picks up this clod of earth and rubs it against his head, covered in blood, and says, however long it takes, wherever it takes me, I'm going to find the man who did this and kill him. And it's about, you know, the stalking of, eventually, a man who is, you know, in his late 70s. And he kills him, he shoots him at point blank, and he dies, you know, this man, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, dies in the same way that people did in that garden. So, yes, I mean, I, I tried very hard to get into the minds of all of the people involved. Why did they do it? You know, this story in India is only presented like a cartoon. But do you think any British government will ever one day give the apology? I can see it happening, yeah. I mean, because the British government has come so close in the past to doing so. In the Cameron administration, it felt like it was going to happen, certainly from... Um, what stopped it? I suppose it's the floodgate theory. <laughs> There's so much else to apologise for. Well, I mean, that's the thing that historians have pointed out. Winston Churchill said, you know, this was one monstrous event in colonial rule. And actually, it wasn't. You know, directly afterwards, there was aeroplane strafing of civilian populations from the sky. And these are populations and villages that had soldiers that they sent off to fight for Britain in the war. So, you know, there's a lot of, lot of stuff that I suppose the argument against an apology would be that well, how long can we keep apologising and for how many things can we keep apologising? You're actually working on extraordinarily distressing stuff. Yeah. Well, luckily I have two... Um, small boys to <laughs> drag me out of all of that and two guinea pigs who do a lot of pooping so they keep me grounded all four of them all four of those small souls well it inevitably calls upon you to tell me the subject of your next book oh well i mean i'm so late with it john i'm ashamed <laughs> so i'm going to choose to thank you for being very patient um but it, it is about another kick-ass women i like kick-ass women it is one of the first women undercover reporters who, between 1900 and 1914, turned the British establishment upside down. She was a fabulous mimic of accents because she was a, a student at the Royal College of Music, so she could mimic. She could also dress up because she knew theatrical people, so she would go deep undercover. She also was incredibly clever and took photographs for the publications of her before and after transformations. I mean, it's a 
tabloid-esque kind of sensibility, which made her wildly popular. And she was a brown woman from India who mm. did this. Her name was Olive Malvery, and the book, so far working title, is Olive Undercover. I must put down an order straight away. I've got to write it first. No, Anita, it's been an extraordinary voyage that you've taken us on today. Thank you for doing it. Well, I am entirely flattered, and thank you very much. That was the brilliant broadcaster and writer Anita Arnand. If you want to enjoy more from her, there are links to Anita's books, the Empire podcast, and any answers in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.